Some of you might remember about, oh, four, four and a half months ago, there was a Sunday evening when Noah stood up here to preach. Our family was gone on vacation. He told this sob story about how we, we had gotten to go that afternoon to a concert in Washington, D.C. that he thought would be this the greatest thing to get to go to and oh, how he wished he could have gone. And we had gotten to do that. And he's in Jamaica today. I don't ever want to hear another sob story. You know, the Bible contains a lot of moments where if you're just reading it for the first time or hearing it for the first time, you might try to think, how is this going to turn out? You know, sometimes our own familiarity with particular accounts almost plays against us sometimes. We, we know where it's going and so we already know the decision that's going to be made or how things are going to go. And we, we just think ahead and we sort of sometimes forget the, the humanness or the emotion of it. What about David and Bathsheba? Maybe the first time you really became familiar with that particular account, you, you, almost, you almost thought to yourself, don't do it, David. Right? You're better than this. You know better than this. Or maybe you think of, of, of Aaron. When the children of Israel talk to him about making an idol, a false god, since Moses was gone. and we, we, we read that story sometimes. We might think, you know, Aaron, don't do it. You, you stand up and you tell them to be faithful to God. You say, we're not going to do this. Or what about Peter? When he had those moments where he could have spoken up for the Lord and defended the Lord or said, I don't know Him. Maybe the first time you read those particular verses, you thought, what's he going to say? Peter, you know the truth. You know, you know what the right answer is. You know what you should say. Or maybe you should just say nothing. I don't know. But you, you know you shouldn't say I don't know Him, but that's exactly what He did. And sometimes I think the reason those particular types of accounts hit us in a certain way is because we all know that there are various times in our lives where we have those decision points. You know, the Bible is so real in many ways, and it contains part of its realty, realty, reality, is it contains, it's not selling houses, part of its reality is it contains the, the range of human emotions. The emotions we all feel. Each one of us has had moments, probably several of them, where we've had a decision to make of what was right, what was wrong, what was wise, what was unwise, biblically speaking. You know, sometimes we're told very simply, you know, if you have to think about it at all, it's probably best not to do it. Well, that's... Maybe one way to think about it, but I think we can go a little bit deeper tonight. What I want to do tonight is simply go around Scripture a little bit in a topical way and consider some tests for decision making. Around the auditorium this thing, you've got some handouts. You'd like to use them to, to make this list. You may want to sing you want to put sort of in the, in the back of your Bible or something to, to keep you know, a list. And some of you keep lists or verses to remember in a blank page in the back of your Bible. This might be a good one to have there as well. And this is meant to be very topical in nature, but I want to give you eight tests, all of them from the Bible, that we can use when we have those moments in life where we know the decision we made, is this right or is this wrong? Is this in a godly way wise or is this unwise? Number one is the scriptural test. And here's the question to ask. Has God directly spoken in His Word about this matter? That's the question to ask. We, we love the Bible. We want to do everything that we do based upon the Word of God. 
And part of the reason for that is it is from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the reference you have on your handouts, all Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction or training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, competent, perfect, equipped for every good work. Now, sometimes we're asked, well, there's a lot of things in the Bible, so how do I know how the Bible teaches? Well, there are several ways. Most of us think of it in three different ways that the Bible teaches. Most important to our discussion tonight is direct statement or direct command. When the Bible simply says to do something or not to do something, that takes care of the matter. The soul that sins shall die. That is a direct statement from Scripture. It's kind of hard to argue with, an absolute direct statement. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. A simple, direct statement. But sometimes the Bible also instructs through what we sometimes call the divine treatment of actions. That is, we see someone or a group of people in the Bible doing something or not doing something, and we wait for how God or how Christ or how an apostle or how a prophet will react to that. Do they say this is an approved thing to do? Or do they say this is not an approved thing to do? We see it sometimes, for example, in the letters that Paul wrote where he encouraged congregations in actions they were currently doing. Things like continue in perseverance or continue in your faithfulness. Sometimes we see them in in things that God disapproves of. Again, go back to the actions of David with Bathsheba and the following account with Uriah where you have just God's very clear disapproval for those things that David did. And then also, we sometimes say that the Bible instructs us or teaches us through necessary inference. That is, the Bible sometimes tells us, here is something to do, but then leaves it up to our wisdom, our thought, our prayer, for how is the wisest and most expedient way to carry out that command. The example that's nearly always used with this is the Bible teaches us to assemble. Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake assembling together. So the natural inference then is, where? Where are we to assemble? It could be in a building such as this. It could be in a house. It could, Noah has mentioned before, he's mentioned congregations where they were literally under a tree in Africa. But there needs to be a location. But for our thoughts this evening, the question to ask when I'm faced with a decision is, does the Bible speak directly to this particular matter? Has God clearly said this is right or wrong? Or has God clearly said in His Word this is wise or unwise? Number two is the secrecy test. And here's the question. Would it hurt me to know if others knew about my choice or my actions. And we very often talk to teenagers and young people about that particular question. But that's not a question just for teenagers. That's a question for every one of us who are trying to be people of faith. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 3 wrote, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. And I chose that verse because of that word integrity. Literally, the idea is the whole person. And we sometimes use that word. If you read articles and others who talk about being people of integrity, sometimes they'll talk about the way you figure out if a person is one of integrity is not what they're like when they're around you. It's what it's like when they're by themselves. Are they the same person everywhere? Are they truly a person of faith 
no matter who they're around, even if it is quite literally no one, no other human being that is. It's easy sometimes to be a person who looks good. We, We can put on a front. All of us can do that. But then we begin to ask questions about different choices that we make and begin to wonder, well, what what would it be like if someone found out about this? What if my children knew what movies I choose to watch when they're not home? Would would it be okay if, if the elders came over for dinner and I showed them what I usually watch on YouTube at night? Would, would it be okay if, if would a fellow Christian approve of what I do when I'm not at home and I'm away on business? Because after all, I'm not at home and everybody else goes to these things and does these things. So those are the kinds of questions that we have to keep in mind. And I didn't put the reference on your hand, you may want to add it. In Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14, where Solomon reminds us that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. Number three is the survey test. And here's the question. What if everyone followed my example in either doing this or not doing this? Would I be considered a good and godly leader if everyone followed my example in this decision? You know, biblically speaking, being a leader can be a good thing or a bad thing. It is a good thing when we use any influence you might have to draw people closer to God, to help them deepen their roots in spiritual maturity. But of course, we also know throughout Scripture that there are bad leaders who lead people further away from God simply because they're following their example. Maybe it's someone of power. Maybe it's just someone of a certain level of influence. And so people follow them, but they follow them straight away from God. Paul commanded Timothy to lead people toward God. In 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example. And he gives that list in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And the reference, I know it's hard, difficult to see on the screens, I apologize for that, is 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, where Paul could say, be imitators or followers of me, even as I am of Christ. I know Paul wrote those words by inspiration. But just practically speaking, would you be comfortable pinning them? Would you be comfortable telling someone that? Now we can say, well, yes, because Paul said, as I follow Christ. There was only follow me as you see me following Christ. But it can become very uncomfortable if I'm not following Christ very much. Or especially if I'm not following Christ in certain areas of my life. Remember that one reason Jesus came to this earth Peter would tell us later in Peter's life, was to leave us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Could we say the same for others? There was an unknown poet who wrote these words. My life shall touch a dozen lives before this day is done. Leave countless marks for good or ill, ere sets the evening sun. This is the wish I always wish, the prayer I always pray. Lord, May my life help other lives. It touches along the way. Question number four, test number four, I should say, is the spiritual test. And here's the question. Am I being pressured by the world or am I being led by the Word of God which is inspired by the Holy Spirit? 
And this is really more than just a you know, quote-unquote peer pressure question like those speeches very often give to young people. This is a thought for every one of us because the world can try to make us look like what it wants us to look like and to think like it would have us to think. And we have to be very careful to cut that off right at the pass. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 gives that very well-known command, do not be conformed to this world. And then Paul will go on to write, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That opening phrase, that verse, do not be conformed to this world, is our key for tonight's thoughts. You know, sometimes, if we're honest, we like to look like, dress like, act like, talk like, be entertained like, and think like the world. And I'm not going to say that that fast ever again. When we start to look like everyone else around us, we are letting the world change our thinking. But it really starts before that. When we begin to think like the world. And that's why Paul would say by the transforming of your mind, or renewal, excuse me, of your mind. In fact, there's one paraphrase that kind of gets to the meaning of that verse when it starts it this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's a great way of thinking that opening line of Romans 12 and verse 2. Now, why is it such a big deal? Well, it's because we're not here to please the world. We are here to please God and to glorify Him. Paul understood that concept very well. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, he asked two questions and then gave the response. He said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And then he concluded, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see his point? We cannot be a true disciple, a true follower, and look like or please the world around us. Think of the illustrations that Jesus used to talk to His followers what they not just were to be, but what they were. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And He also used the illustration of being a city that's set up on a hill. Those all are things, the salt, the light, the city on a hill, those are all things that stand out and stand out for good reason. If a decision we're making won't help us stand out from the world, then we need to avoid it. And do what Paul told the Philippian church, to shine like stars. Number five is the stumbling test. And here's the question. Would this decision cause a fellow Christian or a weaker Christian to stumble, either in imitation of me or in their trust of me? No matter your age this evening, and also no matter how long you've been a Christian, whether it's decades or weeks, someone is looking to you and seeing your decisions and your actions. That might be a, a child or a young person. It might be a co-worker who's not a Christian, but who is looking at you to try to figure out what is this Christianity thing all about. It might be someone who is a Christian, but who's weaker in the faith and believes you to be someone who's a little bit stronger. It is interesting to think about the fact the Bible warns us over and over again about causing someone else more specifically, someone weaker to stumble. We won't take the time this evening to cover the entire context. And I know I'm pulling some thoughts here from the chapter of Romans 14, Pew Packers, weaker brother, that deals with, with that particular subject. But 
in the context, Paul is writing about a couple of specific things. One of them is where these Christians would be allowed to, to eat meat that was offered to idols and those sorts of things. There are some who, who could not bring themselves to do that because of their Old Testament beliefs or because they had come out of that paganism and they didn't, they didn't want to go back into it in any form or fashion. There are other Christians who are going, this doesn't matter. There's not a, there's not a verse about this. Jesus never talked about it, so it doesn't make any difference. But in that context of stronger and weaker and how to deal with this, this matter of opinion or expediency, Notice just a, a few verses scattered throughout what you have referenced on the screens. Romans 14, 13. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But look down if you're in the passage in verses 20 and 21. Do not for the sake of food, that is, this food offered to idols, Destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. In other words, there is kind of a right answer to this. But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. One commentator's comment there is, deny yourself rather than offend your brother. I think that's a great way of commenting. Now, there are some people who say, well, I know what Romans 14 says, and I get it. But I also know some people who will push back against anything. Don't be looking around the auditorium now. Don't do that. They'll find fault with anything. That's not what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 14. He is talking about people who have a clear conscience about two sides of an issue that frankly doesn't matter. And he says the point of it is don't split the church, don't cause someone to lose their faith and stumble in their faith because you are so hardened about something that doesn't make any difference in the end. What does this have to do with making decisions? If God's Word has not directly spoken to something and it's a matter of opinion, sometimes the best response is, let it go. Let it go. I'm quoting Frozen. Let it go. I just realized that. Because I do not ever want a Christian, especially someone new to the faith or considering coming to the faith, to stumble because I would not let something go. Number six is what we might call the serenity test. And here's the question. Have I prayed and gotten the peace that passes all understanding about this decision? And I'll admit up front, before even going through this point at all, of all the tests we're going to talk about tonight, this is the hardest one to sort of define. This is the hardest one to really understand. I get that. But if we truly believe in prayer, and we truly believe that peace can come through or by prayer, then we will pray that God's will be done, and we'll pray that constantly, and we can have a certain type of that peace in our lives, even in very difficult decisions. We have to remember that Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, are not only both true verses, but they are connected verses. As Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Many of you heard heard the story, I'm sure, of the young lady who went to college, Christian young lady, and above the door in her dorm room, she taped the letters to spell out the the phrase, let God. And she thought those words would help her make it through the semester. 
and the semester went on, and it got difficult, there were papers to write, and the pressures of all campus life and all sorts of things, and she kept feeling distressed and, and so difficult about this particular semester and all the things going on until one day she came back to her dorm room and the D had fallen off. And what was left above was let go. Because that's what it means to let God. It's eventually to say, I can't do this, but you can. Now, one quick suggestion before we move on. By saying this, Paul was not saying, go to God with the decision already made in your mind and then expect God just to say yes to what you already wanted to do. There must be discernment from Scripture, from wise counsel, etc. But oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Number seven is the sanctification test. And here's the question. Will this decision help or hinder me as I seek to grow more into the image of Jesus Christ? And that word sanctification is one we basically only use in, in church world. Right? You, don't, you don't walk down the street or you know, the mall and say, hey, how do you feel about sanctification? That doesn't happen. But we know the, the concept behind it is to be set apart. More specifically, to be set apart for a purpose. And one of our purposes in life is to follow the example of Jesus and to seek to be more like Him. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. From this, uh, and this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As a lot bound up in that verse, let me ask this follow-up question. When does that happen? And the answer is, when we allow it to. When we allow it to. When we continually seek to be more like Jesus, and we follow His way, we will be more, to use Paul's terminology here, transformed into His image. In other words, we will start to act like and have attitudes like the one that we want to be like. I love this quotation from Burton Kaufman as he was quote, uh, commenting on this particular verse. He said, Under the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, only the face of Moses shone. Only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. Only the priest might serve at the altar, and etc., and etc. But in the glorious New Covenant, all who are Christ's, whether great or small, whether known or unknown, have this blessed privilege of beholding and being transformed. How beautiful is that? All of us can be. And so we, we seek to answer this question from a couple of angles. First, am I, am I truly seeking to grow to be more like Christ and more like Him? But then when I come to a decision, will this action help me to do that? Would Christ treat this person the way that I'm wanting to treat that particular person? Would it be fulfilling of my purpose to be more like Jesus to teach this particular doctrine? Would my attitude in this particular situation be the same as Christ? Because I want to look more and more and more like Him each and every day. And test eight is the ultimate test, the supreme test. Does this glorify God? When it comes down to it, this is last for a reason, because everything else really falls under the umbrella. If it glorifies God, it will be something that is in keeping with His Word. 
If it glorifies God, it will be something to help build others up instead of causing them to stumble. If it glorifies God, it will glorify Him whether I do this in public or my private life, and on and on and on it goes through all the other tests we've mentioned over the last several minutes. And Paul gives the great summary on this in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. So whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, we can make lists probably half a mile long of reasons why we are here. We can think of scores of purposes for our existence and for our time on earth. What's it all about? But when it comes down to it, we need to realize that ultimately we are here to glorify God. Each decision we make should in some form or fashion show His glory to the world around us. If, if I take that job, that's going to pay some more, but it's going to keep me from worshiping basically every Sunday. Does that glorify Him? When I'm invited to that party on Friday night after the game, will it be a place where, where I can glorify God? Would anybody have any idea I'm trying to glorify God in that place? Well, the movie that I, I pay my money to watch, not really my money, really the Lord's money, will it be one where He's honored and glorified? You see, it's easy to see why this is the supreme test. Jesus perfectly kept the Father's will and in doing so, lived a life that glorified the Father perfectly. We will fail. We have to admit that. But we should strive to make sure that we glorify God in all ways. The ultimate decision to make is to do what we talked about this morning for a moment. To give God everything. To give God everything. Jesus said we love Him, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. That's easier said than done. But when we come to a decision in life, whether it's a job change or a financial decision or where to go to school or just a moral, ethical decision, and we're trying to figure this out, we really are trying to, to make sure that what we do is biblical and godly and wise. If I've given God my all, I may still stress, I may still struggle at times, but more often than not, when the decision is made, I can know I did my best to glorify God. And in the end, that's all that really matters. Have you given Him your all, including your life? If not, will you come? Boy, stand and sing to encourage you.